The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Would you look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 1? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace, from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge, that is, preachers and teachers, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What stands in opposition to that? Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Father, thank you for these moments in your word and also addressing this issue that has worked its way into the fabric of our culture pervasively, and also even into the evangelical church uh, persistently, and even within the PCA uh, doggedly. Would you allow us to have understanding and to deal with this biblically uh, from a historic Christian worldview that is focused upon Christ, that is framed by the Word of God, and that is embraced by the power and the ministry of the Spirit of God. I pray for the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we come to critical theory in this series. Now the series, we haven't been here in a couple of weeks, so if you don't mind, I'm going to back up just a little bit. One of the things that became obvious to me um, is that there were certain false teaching actually anti-gospel teaching that was working its way uh, into the evangelical church in a very powerful way, destructive way, and has making inroads into my own beloved denomination, the PCA. Such things such as side B uh, theology in terms of how do you deal with addictive, um, addictive sexual sins that are besetting in the life of a Christian? And what does it mean to be above reproach in terms of ordination? And then also issues such as critical theory and its subsets that come with it. But it was almost like a light went on for me. And I'm not, uh, I'm not one given to um, interpreting extraordinary moments by extraordinary experiences. But it was like a light had come on for me when I was... Uh, doing a deep dive into the study of um, J. Gresham Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, which I have found so helpful. I've been through it, I guess, probably four or five times now. 
And I was actually, and, and, and I don't mean to get too mystical here, I was actually doing a conference uh, and uh, had taken a couple of extra days for study while I was in Macon, Georgia, which actually I was staying in the home of J. Gresham Machen's grandfather. I was actually staying in the room that J. Gresham Machen used to stay in as a child when he would come to Macon for vacation in the summers. And um, I don't know if that had anything to do with it or not, but I can't help but mention that. And I did the work in the new, th- the new book that's just been put out by Westminster Press, Things Unseen, and then back to Christianity and Liberalism, and I went back again to uh, his beloved colleague's biography on him, and I began to work through it, and it was almost like the light came on for me. Theologically, um, progressive Christianity is not promoting what we would call Christian, what we would call liberal theology. It is promoting what I would call progressive theology. But here's what became obvious to me, that we could go around looking at all of the issues, critical theory, critical race theory, critical law theory, intersectionality, side B, side A, uh, all of these things that keep coming their way, our way. And certainly they all need to be answered. I wouldn't be doing the sermon I'm doing tonight, nor the one I did three weeks, a couple of weeks ago, in terms of side B theology. I wouldn't be doing it if it didn't need to be addressed. But we've also got to understand what is it that lifts the doors for these things? What is it that gives them traction? What is it that opens the door? And that's what became obvious to me. What was obvious to me is that the 21st century manifestation of progressive Christianity, contemporary progressive Christianity, was cut from the same bolt of cloth as 19th and 20th century uh, liberal Christianity. Both of them have the same motivation. Liberal Christianity promises to rescue the church in the 19th century. The modern mind would not tolerate the the, the anachronistic and the, um, uh, and the uh, claims of biblical Christianity any longer. It didn't need it. The modern mind had arrived at a place that those things uh, would not be tolerated. Therefore, we are going to rescue the church from cultural irrelevance. We're going to make the church culturally relevant for the 21st century. More than that, we're going to give, adopt a new mission, and the mission is cultural transformation. In fact, a new movement became, uh, came into existence for the 21st century. Magazines and everything was published around it, the Christian century, that we are now, particularly Protestant mainline uh, churches, are going to usher in a post-millennial utopia that will answer all of the brokenness of our culture. But, uh, and so there's the motivation. We're going to rescue the church from cultural irrelevance. There's the mission. We're going to promote cultural transformation. Well, what is the result? Well, the result is inevitable. Whatever becomes your functional motivation and mission will eventually determine your message. It was just a matter of time until in order to be culturally relevant and a player in cultural transformation that the church had to engage 
engage in cultural accommodation in its message. And the modern mind could not abide by things like an incarnation, a resurrection, the exclusivity of Christ in salvation, an atoning death on the cross. Those things, just, they, have no, they have no resonance in the modern mind. We have to reinterpret this. So instead of a sin-saving gospel, it becomes a social gospel that will cure the remedy, that will be the remedy to cure the ills of the day economically and demographically. And, um, and all of those things can now be cured by this new Christianity, which has gone through and vacuumed out anything that is foundational to Christianity, anything that is supernatural, anything that smacks of, um, of a holy God and um, a holy God who, who creates the way for sinful men to be right with God because of his grace and his mercy and any attendant doctrine. And so thus the result became liberal theology. Well, what is the motivation of progressive Christianity? You can go read the proponents. I'll be glad to give you the list. It is the very same branding. We are going to rescue the evangelical church. So what's at stake now is no longer the Protestant church. Interestingly, where is the Protestant mainline church because of the 19th and 20th century movement of liberal Christianity? It's on the dustbin of history. It's empty. It's gone. It is, it is in the trajectory to oblivion. But now Satan has put his eyes on the evangelical church, which thrived in contrast to the mainline church because it would not abandon the authority, the supremacy, the sufficiency, the inerrancy of God's word. It would not abandon historic Christianity. But now the sights have been set on evangelical Christianity, and you don't want to be on the dustbin of history. You want to be, and I quote, you want to be on the right side of history. You want to be on the right side of history. You don't want to be consigned to the dustbin. We are going to rescue the evangelical church. See, your children are going to college and not coming back. You're not going to win the next generation. We are going to rescue you. So again, the motivation isn't to destroy any more than liberal Christianity's motivation was to destroy. That's the end result, but that's not the motivation. The motivation is we're going to save it for you. That, and how we're going to save it? Cultural transformation. Redeem the city. Seek the welfare of the city. Now, pastor, aren't those biblical terms? Yes, they're biblical terms, but they have to be interpreted in their biblical context, not by the context of the culture, but by the context of what the Word of God says. And I, in this series, I walked you through the, uh, the redeeming of the city at Ephesus, the redeeming of the city at Samaria. How did those cities get redeemed? Not by the cultural movement and the social and political movement of the church, but by the church staying on mission, on message, and in ministry. In Samaria, it said they preached Jesus, and the Jews and the Gentiles believed, and the city was glad. At Ephesus, they rooted out the industries of idolatry because of the growing work of Christianity and the demise of idolatry. The cities were turned around upside down. 
In fact, it says the world was turned upside down, but that's not because Paul went out to lead the church in its missionary endeavors to turn the world upside down. He went out to turn sinners right side up, and the world is a consequence. You see, if you decide, and I'm going to say this again, I know I've said it, but please excuse the review, but I want to make sure we're together. Let me give you illustrations of this. Whenever the church decides church growth is our mission. Now, by the way, I'm all for it. I want more missionaries. I want more converts. I want more. I'm all for it. I'm all for statistical growth. But if that becomes the mission, then you're going to get a pragmatic gospel for the statistics. If that because if if um, if self esteem that everyone feels really good about themselves, if that becomes our mission, then we're going to get a therapeutic gospel. If it's, uh, if it's, you come to this church, you, your, your debts will get paid, you'll get money in the bank, you'll get successful, then you get a prosperity gospel. The motivation and the mission eventually will determine the message. So what do we have now? We don't have a regurgitation of liberal theology, we have, a regur- we have the establishment of, pros- of progressive theology. And they're not attacking the inerrancy of the word. They're attacking the sufficiency of the word. Therefore, all of these tools from the culture are being brought in because the gospel is not sufficient to set sinners free and change their lives. The gospel is not sufficient to address the issue of the horrors of the sin, sinfulness of racism, which I prefer biblically to call ethnicity. Ethnic, um, uh, ethnic uh, discrimination. And so I think that those, are that, but it opens the door for it. And so in they come and they get trajectory. So you're seeing the evangelical church folding just like the Protestant mainline church did because of the adulteration and eventually the apostasy of the message. Now cultural accommodation is happening again. We want to be known as with it culturally. We do not want to be called names by the culture. We don't want to be canceled. We don't want to, we want a seat at the table with the culture shapers. And instead of bringing our calling to the, uh, to bear upon the world on mission, make disciples on message, the gospel leading the whole counsel of God and in ministry, the ministry of worship, the ministry of evangelism, the ministry of enfolding and the ministry of discipleship. Therefore, these things have come in. Now, last time we looked at side B today, I want to take just a moment to look at you with, to look at this with critical theory, the issue of critical theory. Now I commend to you. In fact, somebody came up to me, pastor, what's the one thing I would commend to you, Vody Bachman's book, uh, um, fault lines, and if you and if some of you have just you know culturally you have been inebriated and you can't read anymore, then YouTube has his lectures, and I would encourage you to get his lectures. You can get hold of those if you would desire. They're well done and easily digestible. But let me give you a couple of thoughts as we move ahead. Here's just a couple of them to think through. So what are we looking at with critical theory? What is it? It is a social and philosophical movement into the pulpits of the evangelical 
evangelical church and even into the pulpits, certain pulpits in the Presbyterian Church in America. It is religious in essence. It is a religion. It is a religion. It evangelizes, it disciples, it proselytizes, it does all of those things. It creates worship, celebrity worship. It does all of those things, and it promises to be the answer to man's problem in this world. It is a social, political, and religious movement, and it has its worldview that it incessantly and persistently propagates. How, where did it come from? Well, basically, it, it has quite the history that goes all the way back to a philosopher by the name of Hegel. And Hegel um, it developed this philosophy that is called dialectical materialism. Uh, in other words, it is dialectical, two sides, materialism, all of life is matter. There is no metaphysical, there is no spiritual, none of that. You can dismiss all of that. That's what religious people have used as a power tool to control you. Forget that. The only thing there is is what you see. Dialectical materialism and what the premise basically is, is a worldview. And the worldview is wrapped up with the, the Hegel's um, uh, analysis. You've got thesis, and every time you have a thesis, you have an antithesis, and the thesis and the antithesis cannot stand without conflict, so they war with each other, and upon their war, and upon their, um, and upon their, their battle, out comes a synthesis from the thesis and the antithesis. And I can remind, it's really interesting, when I first started studying this in graduate school, I remember being taught this in civics, in a civics class. And that, uh, that you've got thesis, and you've got antithesis, that creates a synthesis. Well, that automatically creates a new antithesis to the, new, the, to the synthesis, which is the new thesis. And so that will enter into conflict. And that will create a new synthesis that will become the new thesis, that will create the new... And that is the cycle of life. Well, a guy by the name of Charles Darwin gets his hands around it, and then he takes it as the worldview to interpret the data of science. You've got species, you've got muta mutation, you've got the mixing of the two, out comes a new species, which would create by mutation an antithesis, and that creates another species. Now, unfortunately, the, uh, for Mr. Darwin, the evidence doesn't support that, but that's, that was his, that's how he began to interpret the evidence. In other words, Darwin took Hegel and applied him to science, but a guy by the name of Marx applied him to uh, to economics, and then guys like Lenin and others applied him to politics. So what you have now is a guy like Marx that says, all of life is a power struggle. It's a class struggle. There's the bourgeois, they're the haves. There's the proletariat, they're the have-nots. The bourgeois controlled the proletariats, or the capitalists controlled the workers. And what you're going to have is a conflict. We, in science, it was called evolution. Marx calls it revolution. 
you're going to have an economic revolution eventually, which will have political overtones. So a guy like Lenin and others, uh, they put together the political variation of that. So Marx is, is saying that socialism is the answer. So you have the haves, the have-nots, they war. Out of that comes the, the new haves who will create the new have-nots, and that will lead. So the cycle is not evolution. The cycle is revolution. That's what continuing. And the only thing that can be of order is an authoritarian government. That then gives rise to something called communism. We will take care of the production of society, the distribution of wealth. We don't create wealth. We distribute wealth. We don't believe in equality. The government will determine equity. I hope, does that start sounding familiar to you? And so that is exactly what was behind those three movements of, um, of, um, of evolution with Darwin, revolution with, um, with Marx uh, for the purpose of socialism as an economic movement and communism, which becomes the authoritarian state to control wealth, to control pro- productivity, to control all, as everyone now has to invest in the collective. That becomes, and that was the movement. Well, um, and they were, that was going to take over the world. I mean, you can remember, y'all can, I'm, I'm, I know y'all can't remember this. You're too, way too young. But I can remember Khrushchev beating on the, on the UN table, we will take over you. We will uh, conquer you. Well, they didn't conquer. Uh, that system does not work. It will not work. It cannot work. And uh, just as Darwin has his black box that he tries to hide everything, so Marx and Lenin had to hide their, their black box, which was corruption, which was famine, which was poverty, which was a police state, which was the gulag, which was hundreds of millions of deaths. Not, and that was by political incarceration and torture, as well as famines. And, all, and it all began to collapse, and you could see it coming in the 60s and 70s. I'm not here to give a, a political speech, but Reagan could see it coming. That's why Reagan knew all we got to do, we, we're, we're the ones that create pies. We don't divide them up. So we'll take the pies and put the pressure on. They can't stand the pressure. And so he knew there would be an economic collapse. And uh, so he would up the ante. But that had already been seen, that it was coming. This collapse was coming in the 60s and 70s. Well, the followers, the followers of... Um, the followers of socialism and communism uh, did not, they're not going to give up that easy. In fact, they said the only thing, that's, the only problem we had is we had the wrong system. We've got the right worldview, but we had the wrong divisions. The issue is power struggle, but it's not the bourgeois and the proletariat, it's the white race and the other races. And now instead of a class struggle, it becomes a race-based struggle. And a whole new rethinking of Hegel's dialectical materialism went into place under a rubric called the Frankfurt School. 
Now people ask me, is the Frankfurt School in Frankfurt, Germany or Frankfurt, Kentucky? <laughs> well, actually, it's all over. It, the Frankfurt is referring to a particular, um, a particular uh, gathering of certain um, of social and political scientists who were absolutely committed uh, to applying the, um, uh, to spreading internationally communism. That was collapsing everywhere. So how are we going to spread it? Well, we have to rethink it. We have to rethink it and we have to find a different way. It's not going to come through workers' revolt. That's just not going to work. It will come, though, with racial and ethnic um, enmity and, um, and bringing despair to the point that the only thing that can be embraced is is in fact uh, revolution. So they move from class to race, polarization and division, and that will become the way to introduce a revolution that you will then need an authoritarian, uh, you'll need a, a, sociali- a socialism for the distribution of goods for equity purposes and a authoritarian communist state in order to oversee and enforce that distribution. And so um, the coming out party was twofold. The Frankfurt School and the coming out party was twofold. Number one, into the academic world. And, and they found ready converts. The converts from the radicals of the 60s were ready to move into this new, um, this new uh, embrace of this new theory, critical theory, and, they, and then they sought to implement it at every level of education in our country starting in the 60s. They actually labeled it the critical turn. The turn to critical theory, critical turn, and the um, and the, and the previous radicals uh, put on a coat and a tie and went into the classroom, got their PhD, and began to teach it. The number one entry point was English literature, and then the arts, and then into the other disciplines, and they began to be successful. But the other way that it was implemented was in the civil rights movement. And there they did not meet much success or as much success. They tried. They tried through various movements, um, revolutionary movement of militant groups in the 60s. And then they tried it through, uh, uh, through the church. They knew the evangelical church in the African-American society had to be sidelined. So they began to develop something called black liberation theology. And so with the development of black liberation theology and with the um, infiltration of militant groups and the um, multiplication of militant groups, they were going to take over the civil rights movement in the 60s. They just met one problem. His name was Martin Luther King. That's who they met. Martin Luther King said, no, I'm not going to do that. Martin Luther King, this is not a statement promoting Martin Luther King. Like every hero I've ever known, he has his warts and pimples. So this is not a blanket statement, but I do want to honor him. That's why I give out the book, the, the biblical annotations of the letters of Martin Luther King from the Birmingham jail. And I highly commend it to you by Peter Lilbeck. And one of the things he says, he says, no, he said, we're going to fight this biblically and we're going to fight it constitutionally. That what is being done 
with Jim Crow laws and civil rights um, and civil rights uh, retardations that those have to be met. They are inconsistent with the Constitution, and they are also inconsistent with biblical values. Thus came his statement, I long for the world where it will not be the color of your skin, but the content of your character. Have you heard any leaders quote that? In fact, they are ashamed of that and refuse to embrace that in today's modern movements. But Martin Luther King, because of what he did and what he said, uh, bringing to bear the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and biblical world and life view concerning the value and dignity of individuals uh, that undergirded those documents, uh, he, he personally, with his leadership, in my humble opinion, thwarted uh, the success of the critical theory movement. They were successful in the academic world in the 60s, but they lost on the streets uh, because of the leadership of Martin Luther King and those that surrounded him. Uh, Some of them are still living in our own community today. Uh, And then so that's what began to happen. And so what does critical theory begin to promote? Well, it begins to promote critical theory has its subsets. First of all, critical race theory in which it pits races and it associates oppression and discrimination not as a spiritual issue in the heart, but in the DNA of somebody's skin. Thus, whiteness always leads to discrimination. Thus, the scorecard of of critical race theory is intersectionality. Intersectionality, you rate people in terms of the oppressions that have been inflicted upon them. Uh, We had an interesting uh, situation in the present administration that basically was using intersectionality to identify oppressed groups. And so if if you're a man, if you're a white man, you're not oppressed. So uh, that would be, uh, you, you don't create a place for that person. But um, a a white female has one mark of oppression, and that is she's a female. Then a black female would have two marks of oppression. And then if you're a transgender uh, black or white female, then you can create more marks of oppression. And thus, uh, that's a no-win game because there's always somebody that's a little bit more oppressed than you. And when the government appoints you, why didn't you appoint them? They were more oppressed. And that is exactly what, of course, I can give you about three instances, but one of them was a general, an African-American general who was, uh, um, who was put over the, as, um, over the Defense Department, and then Joe Biden came under. Why? Well, he said, well, he's, he's an African-American, and I have, I've manifested one of the key slogan words, diversity. See what I did? See the diversity? Well, yeah, but he's male. He's not female. And by the way, he's not transgender. He's not LGBTQ. And so intersectionality becomes the scorecard to determine how well you are applying critical theory through the lenses of critical race theory. And then there's critical law theory. This defund the police comes out of critical law theory. That the law, the constitute, the whole, the whole principle of lex rex, that the law is king, is nothing more than a power grab from a, uh, from, uh, from a particular race. And therefore, it needs to be, the, it needs to be undermined. Both the law itself, 
the judiciary, the law itself, the judiciary, and the law enforcement. All of that needs to be replaced. Just like you replace leadership with community organizers, you need to replace law enforcement with critical, I mean, you replace law enforcement with community, um, with community counselors. And so you have critical theory giving birth to critical race theory, whereby it is your race that determines the fact that you are and will ever be an oppressor. And then critical law theory, and, and, then, and then intersectionality, and all of these things begin to have the buzzwords attached to them. We used to strive for biblical justice, now it's social justice. We used to talk about equality, now it's equity. Not equality of stature and opportunity, but and dignity and respect, but uh, equity that is the distribution of outcome is to be controlled. Diversity based on intersectionality, sensitivity to training, which means if you are if you are of one race, such as the white race, your sensitivity training is never contribute. You have to sit and listen. You have nothing to contribute. And then, um, um, and so, um, and then, and then the insistent upon the Darwinian view of races, of races. Uh, I, in my humble opinion, you can never attack ethnic tra- ethnic discrimination until you get to the biblical cosmology that there's one race. It's called the human race, and Adam had all of that DNA that would come out in microevolution in the colors of skin in the future. But that what Paul said in Acts 17 is a key that God made from one man every ethnicity. There are multiple ethnicities, but one race. And everyone is made in the image of God and is to be treated in that manner. And in Christianity, there is neither Jew nor Gentile in terms of status. We are one in Christ, covered with the blood of Christ. Then comes the cancel culture. Then comes historical revision. You can't... You, to destroy a nation, you have to destroy its history. And therefore, you go after everything in history. And what, instead of recognizing that every historical figure had their positives and their negatives, then there are certain negatives that are unforgivable sins, and therefore the record of these people need to be wiped out. And then finally, critical theory with all of its subsets is directly anti-Christian. That's why when the the letter was sent out to many of us, listen, um, why don't you just take critical race theory, critical theory, and realize there's some meat on the bone, get the meat off the bone, and, uh, and we're hungry for this, right? Get the meat off the bone and then spit the meat out, I mean spit the bones out and chew the meat. Well, my retort to that publicly was this, that's a wrong metaphor, that's a wrong analogy. The fact is, is that critical theory is not something that has meat on the bone. It is nothing but bone. All the meat you need is in the sufficiency of God's Word and the promises of God's Word that are accomplished through a biblical world and life view and the power of the gospel. Critical theory is not a bony fish that you can get some meat off of if you're hungry. 
Critical theory would be more like the ocean. You're a thirsty man in a lifeboat, and you got all that water around you. And you say, you know, if I drink this water, I can live. And then you remember, no, this is salt water. It will kill me. And I hope you will not delude yourself into that moment. Well, I'll go ahead and drink it and spit out the salt. You can't. The poison is in the stew, if I can mix the metaphor. The poison is in the stew. It is anti-Christian. It is anti-gospel. It is anti-biblical world and life view. It is anti, just go read their statements. One of the oppressors is the natural family. The work ethic. All of those creation mandates that we see. Have you ever wondered why Genesis is always attacked? Because the foundation of a biblical world and life view rests in the opening chapters of Genesis. In the opening chapters of Genesis, what do you have? The binary. God and His creation. And then God, to point out every day the binary, that there is a God who is a creator, is the creation contains the fingerprints of the binary. Light, darkness, evil, good, male, female, land, earth. But the form and function that is displayed in Genesis is attacked by a pagan world in life view. My dear friend Peter Jones has written ex- exquisitely on this. And that is exactly what paganism moves toward. Androgyny. That there's no difference between us. Um, in fact, we've even gone to work to remove the biological differences through transgender surgery. Which is a fabricated notion that we'll reassign your gender. I've got news for you. Dig somebody up a hundred years later that had the surgery. They'll still have the DNA that they had. You can't reassign gender. We are the biological sex that God made us. Certainly we can discuss what the lifestyles come out of that sex appropriately from God's word. But the fact is, is that we are, uh, we are what God made us. <laughs> it's never going to leave us. I mean, you can do all the cultural work you want to, but uh, that woman is still going to tell her husband, honey, we just had a baby boy. And that man, if he's got any sense at all, will say, oh, no, we didn't. You did. Thank you. If he's got any sense at all. And so that's one of the blessings that we have is the binary. But what, what same-sex marriage, androgyny, um, uh, surgical mutilation, chemical uh, manipulation. You do realize that there is a certain disease that people have that blocks the messages from the brain to the reproductive private parts of a man. It's called a disease. Hormonal treatment actually is the infliction of that disease that we used to try to cure. Now we give it to 13 and 14-year-old boys. And we call that medical practice. I believe it's malpractice. I believe it's child abuse. 
That's what it is. And that is because it has found its, its movement into society because the church has a problem. We think it's our mission to redeem the culture, not save sinners. And then disciple them, which does change the culture. When sinners get transformed by the grace of God. But what does, what does critical theory say? Critical theory declares there is no reconciliation. There is no confession. Repentance is not allowed. Only penance. Only pen- Lifelong penance is all you can do. There is no repentance. There is no forgiveness. There is no reconciliation. It is simply the oppressed becoming the new oppressors until the new oppressed revolt against them. But we can handle that for you with an authoritarian state that will enforce it with military and IRS power. So here is anti-Christian, anti-gospel, no redemption, no confession, no forgiveness, none of that. There is no meat on the bone. It is anti-Christian. It is anti-gospel. Pastor, how is it getting such a foothold? Well, the evangelical church is, number one, scared to death because nobody wants to be called homophobic, racist, or bigot, but that's exactly what will, be ha- what will happen. But let me just say something else. Can I get us off the hook just for a moment, a little bit? Listen, we know that racism is an issue, or ethnic discrimination is an issue, and we hate it. We hear, John, we hear James, uh, his gospel solution in the book of James. So we hate racism. We desperately want people who are sexually struggling and destroyed by sexual promiscuity and perversion. We want them. We want them to know forgiveness. We want them to know repentance. We want them to know transforming power of regeneration, the blessings of justification. We want that. So when these things come up, the church gives an ear. And it gives an ear to what is being said. And Satan loves to use that moment if we're not alert. The text I read from you that Paul wrote to Timothy was a text that he, a letter that he wrote after he had been liberated from his first Roman imprisonment. Does anyone remember what he said before he left Ephesus and went to Jerusalem, was arrested? then two years in Caesarea by the sea, and then on to his first Roman imprisonment. Do you remember what he said to the church at Ephesus? Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Upon my departure, savage wolves will come in teaching twisted things to lead the disciples to themselves. And that's exactly what happened. So when he got out of Roman imprisonment and he got the report of false teachers, he sent his best man on a ministry of church revitalization. And when he got there, he said, the very first thing I want you to tackle, I want you to tackle these false teachers. They're teaching strange doctrines. 
The elders have allowed them in. I warned them, but they've allowed them. Then in 1 Timothy 3, here are the qualifications for leadership. We need to remove the false teachers and the false leaders. So may I say Walter was right. He stole my takeaway. (laughs) Progressive Christianity, it's false leadership that uses our terms, but not our dictionary. It uses our vocabulary, but not our dictionary. It's got its finger on valid issues, but the finger is only causing a greater problem and is distracting us from the gospel answers that Christ alone provides when he gives a new record and a new heart. Therefore, we have to say no to the new motivation, the new mission, and the new message of progressive Christianity. It has opened the door for these aberrant, adulterated, and eventually apostate doctrines of first order. They're going after the sufficiency of Scripture. They're going after the first order issues of the gospel. I delivered to you of first importance the gospel. And they can't deliver. They're not designed to deliver. They're designed to polarize, to create conflict. To create, to create even revolution in the street if necessary. In order that we look for another savior, it's called the authoritarian government. And the evangelical church is buying into it because it's, it's buying into the motivation. We need to be culturally relevant. It's buying into the new mission, cultural transformation. Therefore, its message is cultural accommodation and now critical theories, side B, all of those things find root and rest. Let me give you another reason why it's tough. Uh, I got one minute to give it to you. Here it is, one minute. Um, The one minute is simply this. There are powerful culture shapers out there, and they've all bought into it. There's five of them. The academy. Graduate school, please, please hear me. The college that your daddy went to is not the college that's there anymore. The curriculum has been penetrated. I'm not saying our kids don't need to go to school. I'm just saying know where they're going and who's teaching them. And the curriculum is not your ally. And it's not enough. I praise the Lord whenever we've got a campus outreach ministry that is standing firm there. Praise the Lord. And we can get them in a good church while they're there. Praise the Lord. But realize the academy is shaping their mind. And it's been doing it since the 1960s. And it's not just graduate and undergraduate. It is all the way high school, all the way to elementary school. Critical theory is embraced and employed and used. Journalism has completely embraced it. The media, the culture shaper of academy, of journalism and the media... Thirdly, the entertainment world is constantly putting out 
unbelievably well-made films and play and uh, plays and record and out records. They don't do that anymore, do they? Uh, albums. There's got to be some form of album out there. Uh, they're doing. They put and and they know the avenue is literature and the arts. They've been using it since the '60s, and it was used before then. So there's the academy, there's journalism, there's media, there's the entertainment world, there's the bureaucratic state in the local, in the state, and in the federal government. And they are funding critical theory as diversity training, as sensitivity training. And they make you go through it. And then corporate America has completely embraced it. So now to work there, you've got to go through the training programs that are completely put together by critical theory and the LGBTQ agenda. Those are the culture shapers that are there. So what we desperately need is the people of God who have conviction, the people of God who have courage, and the people of God who have compassion, and the people of God who within the church of Jesus Christ That's in the world. We're not going to withdraw. We're in the world. We contextualize. We speak to the culture in the terms it understands. But we do not speak on the terms it demands. With courage and conviction, we hold to a biblical dictionary and biblical terms. To the gospel of saving grace. And then ask God through, through discipleship to build strong men and women that go into every sphere of society with that seamless commitment that Seth spoke of to the preeminence of Christ and the whole counsel of God motivated by the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. With conviction, with courage, with compassion, a contrast into the world, here is what the gospel does. What does the world bring? Well, I said it this morning. It brings them on a path of misery. There's no hope. It's not designed for hope. It's designed for despair so that you give up hope. But we declare the blessings of the blessed hope that is found in Christ. We plead. We pray. We persuade. We are We declare with clarity and with charity. And we go to seek the lost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments to be together in your word. Thank you, Father, for my great privilege to serve you with these elders and deacons and pastors and members at Briarwood. Would you help us to say no to any vestige of self-righteousness? any sense of boastful arrogance, we are simply but profoundly sinners saved by grace. But we also know profoundly that grace is greater than our sin. We can be forgiven. We can be changed. We can grow. And when we go to be with you, there will be no presence of sin, nor its consequences. But until then, would you help us to be motivated out of love to Christ, not to be accepted by the culture. Would you give us the mission 
of making disciples of all the nations. The message of the gospel frame teaching of the whole counsel of God. And the ministries of worship, evangelism, disciple making, and enfolding one another. That the world may see a people who are not a people, but have become by grace the people of God to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.